Chapter 77 of Varney the Vampire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by The Bodster. Varney the Vampire, Volume 2, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 77. Varney in the Garden, the Communication of Dr. Chillingworth to the Admiral and Henry. Kind reader, it was indeed Varney who had clambered over the garden wall and thus made his way into the garden of Bannerworth Hall. And what filled those who looked at him with the most surprise was that he did not seem in any particular way to make a secret of his presence, but walked on with an air of boldness which either arose from a feeling of absolute impunity, from his thinking there was no one there, or from an audacity which none but he could have compassed. As for the little party that was there assembled, and who looked upon him, they seemed thunder-stricken by his presence, and Henry, probably as well as the Admiral, would have burst out into some sudden exclamation had they not been restrained by Dr. Chillingworth, who, suspecting that they might in some way give an alarm, hastened to speak first, saying in a whisper, "'For heaven's sake, be still! Fortune, you see, favours us most strangely. Leave Varney alone. You have no other mode whatever of discovering what he really wants at Bannerworth Hall. I am glad you have spoken, said Henry, as he drew a long breath. If you had not, I feel convinced that in another moment I should have rushed forward and confronted this man who has been the very bane of my life. So should I, said the Admiral although I protest against any harm being done to him on, on account of some sort of good feeling that he has displayed, after all, in releasing Charles from that dungeon in which Marchdale has perished. At the moment, said Henry, I had forgotten that, but I will own that his conduct has been tinctured by a strange and wild kind of generosity at times, which would seem to bespeak at the bottom of his heart, some good feelings, the impulses of which were only quenched by circumstances. That is my firm impression of him, I can assure you, said Dr. Chillingworth. They watched Varney now from the leafy covert in which they were situated, and indeed, had they been less effectually concealed, it did not seem likely that the much-dreaded vampire would have perceived them. For not only did he make no effort at concealment himself, but he took no pains to see if anyone was watching him in his progress to the house. His footsteps were more rapid than they usually were, and there was altogether an air and manner about him, as if he were moved to some purpose which of itself was sufficiently important to submerge in its consequences all ordinary risks and all ordinary cautions. He tried several windows of the house along that terrace, of which we have more than once had occasion to speak, before he found one that opened. But at length he did succeed, and stepped at once into the hall, leaving those who now for some moments in silence had regarded his movements to lose themselves in a fearful sea of conjecture as to what could possibly be his object. "'At all events,' said the Admiral, "'I'm glad we are here. "'If the vampire should have a fight with that other fellow,' that we heard doing such a lot of carpentering work in the house, we ought, I think, to see fair play. I, for one, said the doctor, would not like to stand by and see the vampire murdered, but 
I am inclined to think he is a good match for any mortal opponent. You may depend he is, said Henry. But how long, Doctor, do you purpose that we should wait here in such a state of suspense as to what is going on within the house? I hope not long, but that something will occur to make us have food for action. Hark! What is that? There was a loud crash within the building as of broken glass. It sounded as if some window had been completely dashed in, but although they looked carefully over the front of the building, they could see no evidences of such a thing having happened, and were compelled, consequently, to come to the opinion that Varney and the other man must have met in one of the back rooms, and that the crash of glass had arisen from some personal conflict in which they had engaged. "'I cannot stand this,' said Henry." "'Nay, nay,' said the doctor, "'be still, and I will tell you something, "'that which there can be no more fitting time than this to reveal.' "'Refers it to the vampire?' "'It does, it does.' "'Be brief, then. "'I am in an agony of impatience.' "'It is a circumstance concerning which I can be brief, "'for, horrible as it is, I have no wish to dress it "'in any adventitious colours. "'Sir Francis Varney, although under another name,' is an old acquaintance of mine. Acquaintance? said Henry. Why, you don't mean to say you are a vampire, said the Admiral, or, or that he has visited you ever? No, but I knew him. From the first moment that I looked upon him in this neighbourhood, I thought I knew him. But the circumstances which induced me to think so was of so terrific a character that I made some efforts to chase it from my mind. It has, however, grown upon me day by day, and lately I have had proof sufficient to convince me of his identity, with one whom I first saw under most singular circumstances of romance. Say on, you are agitated. Oh, I am indeed. This revelation has several times within the last few days trembled on my lips, but now you shall have it because you ought to know all that it is possible for me to tell you of him who has caused you so serious an amount of disturbance. You awaken, Doctor, said Henry, all my interest. And mine too, remarked the Admiral. What can it be all about, and where, Doctor, did you first see this Varney the Vampire? In his coffin. Both the Admiral and Henry gave starts of surprise, as with one accord they exclaimed, Did you say coffin? Yes, I tell you on my word of honour that the first time in my life I ever saw Sir Francis Varney was in his coffin. Then he is a vampire, and there can be no mistake, said the Admiral. Go on, I pray you, Doctor, go on, said Henry anxiously. I will. The reason why he became the inhabitant of a coffin was simply this. He had been hanged executed at the Old Bailey in London, before ever I set eyes upon that strange countenance of his. You know that I was practising surgery at the London schools some years ago, and that consequently, as I commenced the profession rather late in life, I was extremely anxious to do the most I could in a very short space of time. Yes, yes. Arrived then, with plenty of resources, which I did not, as the young men who affected to be studying the same classes as myself, spend in the pursuit of what they considered life in London, I was indefatigable in my professional labours, 
and there was nothing connected with them which I did not try to accomplish. At that period, the difficulty of getting a subject for anatomization was very great, and all sorts of schemes had to be put into requisition to accomplish so desirable and, indeed, absolutely necessary a purpose. I became acquainted with the man who, I have told you, is in the hall at present, and who then filled the unenviable post of public executioner. It so happened, too, that I had read a learned treatise by a Frenchman who had made a vast number of experiments with galvanic and other apparatus, upon which persons who had come to death in different ways, and in one case he asserted that he had actually recovered a man who had been hanged, and he had lived five weeks afterwards. Young as I then was, in comparison to what I am now, in my profession this inflamed my imagination, and nothing seemed to me so desirable as getting hold of someone who had only recently been put to death for the purpose of trying what I could do in the way of attempting a resuscitation of the subject. It was precisely for this reason that I sought out the public executioner and made his acquaintance, whom everyone else shunned, because I thought he might assist me by handing over to me the body of some condemned and executed man upon whom I could try my skill. I broached the subject to him, and found him not averse. He said that if I would come forward and claim as next of kin the body of the criminal who was to be executed the first time from that period, that he could give me a hint that I could have no real next of kin opponents. He would throw every facility in my way and allow the body to be removed to his house. This was just what I wanted, and I believe I waited with impatience for some poor wretch to be hurried to his last account by the hands of my friend, the public executioner. At length a circumstance occurred which favoured my designs most effectually. A man was apprehended for a highway robbery of a most aggravated character. He was tried, and the evidence against him was so conclusive that the defence which was attempted by his counsel became a mere matter of form. He was convicted and sentenced. The judge told him not to flatter himself with the least notion that mercy would be extended to him. The crime of which he had been found guilty was on the increase. It was highly necessary to make some great public example, to show evildoers that they could not, with impunity, thus trample upon the liberty of the subject, and had suddenly, just as it were, in the very nick of time committed the very crime, attended with all the aggravated circumstances which made it easy and desirable to hang him out of hand. He heard his sentence, they tell me, unmoved. I did not see him but he was represented to me as a man of a strong and well-knit frame, with rather a strange but what some would have considered a handsome expression of countenance, inasmuch as there was an expression of much haughty resolution depicted on it. I flew to my friend the executioner. Can you, I said, get me that man's body who is to be hanged for the highway robbery on Monday? Yes, he said. I see nothing to prevent it. Not one soul has offered to claim even common companionship with him, far less kindred. I think if you and your claim as a cousin, who will bear the expense of his decent burial, you will have every chance of getting possession of the body. I did not hesitate, but on the morning before the execution, I called upon one of the sheriffs. I told him that the condemned man, I regretted to say, was related to me, but as I knew nothing could be done to save him on the trial, I had abstained from coming forward. 
but that, as I did not like the idea of being rudely interred by the authorities, I had come forward to ask for the body after the execution should have taken place, in order that I might, at all events, bestow upon it, in some sequestered spot, a decent burial, with all the rites of the church. The sheriff was not a man overburdened with penetration. He applauded my pious feelings and actually gave me, without inquiry, a written order to receive the body from the hands of the hangman, after it had hung the hour prescribed by the law. I did not, as you may well suppose, wish to appear more in the business than was absolutely necessary. But I gave the executioner the sheriff's order for the body, and he promised that he would get a shell ready to place it in and four stout men to carry it at once to his house, when he should cut it down. Good, I said. And now, as I am not a little anxious for the success of my experiment, do you not think that you can manage so that the fall of the criminal shall not be so sudden as to break his neck? I have thought of that, he said, and I believe that I can manage to let him down gently, so that he shall die of suffocation, instead of having his neck put out of joint. I will do my best. If you can but succeed in that, said I, for I was quite in a state of mania upon the subject, I shall be much indebted to you, and I will double the amount of money which I have already promised. This was, as I believe it would be, a powerful stimulus to him, to do all in his power to meet my wishes, and he took, no doubt, active measures to accomplish all that I desired. You can imagine with what intense impatience I waited the result. He resided in an old ruinous-looking house, a short distance on the Surrey side of the river, and there I had arranged all my apparatus for making experiments upon the dead man, in an apartment the windows of which commanded a view of the entrance. I was completely ready by half-past eight, although... A moment's consideration, of course, told me that at least another hour must elapse before there could be the least chance of my seeing him arrive, for whom I so anxiously longed. I can safely say so infatuated was I upon the subject that no fond lover ever looked with more nervous anxiety for the arrival of the chosen object of his heart than I did for that dead body upon which I proposed to exert all the influences of professional skill to recall back the soul to its earthly dwelling-place. At length I heard the sound of wheels. I found that my friend the hangman had procured a cart in which he brought the coffin, that being a much quicker mode of conveyance than by bearers, so that at about a quarter past nine o'clock the vehicle with its ghastly contents, stopped at the door of his house. In my impatience, I ran downstairs to meet that which ninety-nine men out of a hundred would have gone some distance to avoid the sight of, namely, a corpse, livid and fresh from the gallows. I, however, heralded it as a great gift, and already, in imagination, I saw myself imitating the learned Frenchman, who had published such an elaborate treatise on the mode of restoring life under all sorts of circumstances to those who were already pronounced by unscientific persons to be dead. To be sure, a sort of feeling had come over me at, at times, knowing as I did that the French are a nation that do not scruple at all to sacrifice truth on the altar of vanity, that it might be after all a mere 
rhodomontade. But, however, I could only ascertain so much by actually trying, so the suspicion that such might, by a possibility, be the end of the adventure did not deter me. I officiously assisted in having the coffin brought into the room where I had prepared everything that was necessary in the conduction of my grand experiment. And then, when no one was there with me but my friend the executioner, I, with his help, the one of us taking the head and the other the feet, took the body from the coffin and lay it upon the table. Hastily, I placed my hand upon the region of the heart, and to my great delight I found it still warm. I drew off the cap that covered the face, and then, for the first time, my eyes rested upon the countenance of him who now calls himself, heaven only knows why, Sir Francis Varney. Good God, said Henry, are you certain? Quite. It may have been some other rascal like him, said the Admiral. No, I am quite sure now. I have, as I have before mentioned to you, tried to get out of my own conviction upon the subject, but I have been actually assured that he is the man by the very hangman himself. Go on, go on. Your tale certainly is a strange one, and I do not say it either to compliment you or to cast a doubt upon you, but except from the lips of an old and valued friend such as yourself, I should not believe it. I am not surprised to hear you say that, replied the doctor, nor should I be offended even now if you were to entertain a belief that I might, after all, be mistaken. No, no, you would not be so positive upon the subject, I well know, if there was the slightest possibility of an error. Indeed, I should not. Let us have the sequel, then. It is this. I was most anxious to effect an immediate resuscitation, if it were possible, of the hanged man. A little manipulation soon convinced me the neck was not broken, which left me at once everything to hope for. The hangman was more prudent than I was, and before I commenced my experiments, he said, Doctor, have you duly considered what you mean to do with this fellow, in case you should be successful in restoring him to life? Not I, said I. Well, he said, you can do as you like, but... I consider that it is really worth thinking of. I was headstrong on the matter, and could think of nothing but the success or the non-success, in a physiological point of view, of my plan for restoring the dead to life. So I set about my experiments without any delay, and with a completeness and a vigour that promised the most completely successful results, if success could at all be an ingredient in what sober judgment would doubtless have denominated a mad-headed and wild scheme. For more than half an hour I tried in vain by the assistance of the hangman who acted under my directions. Not the least symptom of vitality presented itself, and he had a smile upon his countenance. As he said in a bantering tone, I am afraid, sir, it is much easier to kill than to restore their patience with doctors. Before I could make him any reply, for I felt that his observation had a good amount of truth in it, joined to its sarcasm, the hanged man uttered a loud scream and opened his eyes. I must own I was myself rather startled, but 
I for some moments longer continued the same means which had produced such an effect, when suddenly he sprang up and laid hold of me, at the same time exclaiming, Death! Death! Where is the treasure? I had fully succeeded, too fully. And while the executioner looked on with horror depicted in his countenance, I fled from the room and the house, taking my way home as fast as I possibly could. A dread came over me that the restored man would follow me if he should find out to whom it was he was indebted for the rather questionable boon of a new life. I had packed up what articles I set the greatest store by, bade adieu to London, and never have I since set foot within that city. And you never met the man you had so resuscitated? Not till I saw Varney the vampire, and, as I tell you, I am now certain that he is the man. That is the strangest yarn I have ever heard, said the Admiral. A most singular circumstance, said Henry. You may have noticed about his countenance, said Dr. Chillingworth. A strange, distorted look? Yes, yes. Well, that has arisen from a spasmodic contraction of the muscles, in consequence of his having been hanged. He will never lose it, and it has not a little contributed to give him the horrible look he has, and to invest him with some of the seeming outward attributes of the vampire. And that man, who is now in the hall with him, Doctor, said Henry, is the very hangman who executed him? The same. He tells me that after I left he paid attention to the restored man and completed what I had nearly done. He kept him in his house for a time and then made a bargain with him for a large sum of money per annum, all of which he has regularly been paid, although he tells me he has no more idea where Varney gets it than the man in the moon. It is very strange, but hark, do you not hear the sound of voices in angry altercation? Yes, yes, they have met. Let us approach the windows now. We may chance to hear something of what they say to each other. End of chapter 77 Recording by The Bodster That was chapter 77 of volume 2 of Varney the Vampire by Thomas Prescott Prest.